Hello and welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, someone who does not identify as a punk at all, but someone who is no doubt a major influence on this genre, someone who influences so much, someone who I've wanted to have on this show since before its inception, someone I've always wanted to talk to. Today on the show... The icon, the legend, Lydia Lunch. You may know her from Teenage Jesus and the Jerks. You may know her from Beirut Slump. You may know her from Spoken Word, some of her collaborations with some of music's, you know, most important figures. She's like your hero's hero, you know, so many films too. We can go on forever just with her resume, but I will get to more of that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turned out a punk podcast at gmail.com and that is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire Tristan Abraham and he will get the message to me and we can communicate that way or you can find me at left for Damien on Instagram and Twitter and uh yeah we'll, we can get uh get in touch that way as well so there, there you go. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by letting everyone you know know that you enjoy this podcast. Just just spread the word that way. Tell friend and foe alike about this podcast and spread the word that way. Also, you can uh, support this podcast by heading over to Patreon and the Patreon people over there. I very much appreciate each and every one of you. You can check out footnotes and other fun stuff that we do over on the Patreon account. And uh, yeah, thank you very much to those that support that over there. Turned out a punk or patreon.com slash turned out a punk. Speaking of support, this thing would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a couple years ago and gave me some money each week and to help me cover the cost of this thing and just let me book whoever I want to book. And I really thank them for doing that. So thank you very much to the fine folks at Vans. And the House of Vans will be back at some point in the future, and I will be there. Oh, my gosh. I cannot wait till there's a, a way to do that safely and we can all get back together again and uh, experience Turned out a punk live at a house of vans. Oh my gosh, do I miss that? Oh, oh. On to today's show. Today on the show is a legend. There's no way to put it otherwise. Maybe icon is another way to say it. Lydia Lunch is someone who I would describe as one of my most wanted to interview guests of all time. I'm a huge fan of her work. I think I first became familiar with her through her collaboration with Sonic Youth on Death Valley 69. And from there, working at video stores, you know, watching some of her work in sort of with the cinema of transgression movement and then studying that in film school a little bit, too, and just becoming a massive fan of Teenage Jesus and the Jerks and Beirut Slump and Eight-Eyed Spies and just, you know, all these groups, spoken word stuff that she's done, writing stuff that she's done. She's definitely an artist that uh, pushes limits. There's no... <laughs> Really, there's no other way to say it. And someone that I have wanted to have on this show for a long time. And thank you to everyone that worked hard to make this happen. Uh, this is a good one. This is a good one. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Oh, before I, before I let you get to the show, I got to make some notes. Uh, at one point, Lydia talks about the cover of Boy Girl, her incredible collaboration with Sort Soul, uh, being covered by The Strokes. It was actually covered by... Julian Casablanca solo with Jenny Beth as well, who may or may not be an upcoming guest on the show, but we'll get to that later on, you know? 
Also, Stephen McDonald from Red Cross did not record the 1313 record. It was Steve McDonald, another guy that was running around with a similar name, but he assured me he did not record that record. So uh, that's it. I'm not going to blather on anymore. So here is Lydia Lunch on Turned Out a Punk. Lydia, thank you so much for coming on the show. Glad to be here. I didn't have to move far just from my bed to the couch. (laughs) Well, as I was just telling you off air, you know, my brother and I, you're like one of those dream guests for us that we've been trying to get on the show for for a while. And it just hasn't come together for various reasons. But now that it's finally happening, oh, my gosh, am I excited? Well, thank you so much. Now, don't wet your pants, honey. (laughs) I mean, you you can. I won't know. (laughs) Okay. Well, I assure you, I'm properly diapered in case that does happen. But um, I want to start this thing off the way they all start off, which is, Lydia, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Well, I mean, first of all, I'm a no-wave artist. I don't consider myself punk rock, but I mean, you know, and also I was inspired more by literature than by music. But look, I mean... um, in 73, we'll say, before most of you were born, and I was just a young whippersnapper, I was into glam, but also the Stooges. Mm-hmm. And I was going to a lot of concerts then because Rochester, New York, where I'm from, just had an incredible amount of concerts. And so, you know, what most people consider punk, um, I might either stretch the boundaries of that or condense it, depending on my mood. <laughs> but I would say getting into the Stooges is kind of punk. Uh, but let's talk about Stiv Baders and the Dead Boys for a minute. Yes. I met Stiv Baders before either of us lived in New York or either of us had a band, I think. Because wow. I met, I believe, when I first ran away to New York at the age of 13 or 14, and I met him on St. Mark's Place, and he was wearing an Iggy Pop T-shirt. I'm like, who are you? And he was living in Cleveland and I was living in Rochester and we became pen pals. Oh yeah. That's amazing. Well, people actually used to write letters Mm -hmm. and, um, Oh, I remember some of the dirty letters we, we wrote each other. It's, it's kind of interesting. And then of course we ended up not too many years later enacting some of those dirty letters. (laughs) I loved the dead boys. They did write a song about me, but, um, you know, and again, I mean, to me, of course, they're punk, but they're really traditional rock. Mm-hmm. And Sonic Reducer is one of the best songs ever written, period, whatever genre you want to, you know, label it. Absolutely. Well, and I think that's the thing is it's amazing. You know, you mentioned Steve Baders, and obviously he's in Cleveland. They do Frankenstein and, and Rock from the Tombs is kind of going around then. And there just feels like there's this energy that eventually coalesces and gets called punk rock. But it was something that was bubbling under the surface for a number of years. Well, exactly. And it's the New York Dolls that I first ran away to New York for in like 73. I didn't see them then, but I ran away because of them. And they were punk in the more <laughs> in the more jailhouse tradition of the word. They were, you know, naughty, cross-dressing, rock turned faster and upside down on its head and stripped of the male, you know, bullshit. And with the addition of just this Femi Masco, like so feminine yet so hardcore. They were just, I mean, the New York Dolls are still one of my favorites. Well, where were you hearing about this kind of music? Because it's obviously not mainstream music at this point. Like, where were you discovering this stuff from? Okay, so uh, since I'm a little bit older than most of you, I mean, we actually had rock magazines in those days. (laughs) Of course. That would review things Mm -hmm. like the New York Dolls. There was no internet. Mm -hmm. And and also because... um, 
Okay, so I'm like 13. I'm going to the House of Guitars, and if anybody doesn't know what that is, you need to investigate the House of Guitars because one of the earliest, I'd say, quote-unquote, punk records that influenced Lou Reed was Armin Schwabach and his brothers who started by stealing guitars, went to jail, wrote some records, one called A Lot of People Would Like to See Armin Schwabach Dead, and then opened a guitar emporium and vinyl warehouse, which still exists to this day, more than 40 years later. So between the house guitars, there was also shows on TV, actual shows on Friday night, midnight special, Don Kirshner's rock concert that the New York Dolls, Alice Cooper, everybody would be on. So the information might have not been by internet, but anybody who was interested in music, you would buy Circus Magazine, Rock Scene Magazine, you would watch these concerts, and I, as somebody who would always have to go to the concerts, quote-unquote, for my career, uh, <laughs> my mother would laugh, my father would take me, um, I just one day knocked on the door when they had good college radio, of this college radio station that would play all these weird things. And there was this dude who like long, he looked like an Oldman brother, but he was <laughs> coolest DJ. And I'm like, look, I'm poor. I need tickets to rock concerts. And he started giving me tickets and backstage passes to all the rock concerts. So that's how things like the New York Dolls. And I'm like, all right, I got to get out of here. To quote Alice Cooper, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. And um, I went to New York and New York in 73 might have been even worse than it was in 76 or seven when I decided to go there permanently. Um, it was just a wasteland. Mm -hmm. And there were, as opposed, I mean, there was really no concrete. CBGB's was just getting going, but it was down such a long, desperate, dangerous strip of what was Bleecker Street then. And um, there were discos. I hated disco, but I did love, Drugs and not going to sleep. <laughs> Who doesn't? So uh, anyway, yeah, rock magazines and college DJ radio, you know, it exposed me first to the things that then made me go to New York right when everything was really kicking off. Uh, did you ever see Armand Schobrock Steals live? Because that band, that are uh, incredible. No, but I, but okay, this is this. I'm glad I'm here. You know, anybody that's a musician who's gone through Rochester knows this place because it's just so insane mm -hmm. that it still exists and, and the whole history of how it started and also his music, which really predated Lurie's kind of spoken rock. Um, I've never saw them live, but I would go in there every weekend demanding because they had crazy commercials like Crazy Eddie used to have, like really insane commercials demanding to be on a commercial at 13. And they would just always, the brothers would always have the same reaction. Ah, 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 ah. I'm like, all right, you'll see. And actually standing in the house guitars, 13, and let's just put this in context. Maybe it's 1973 and I'm already in all black, wet look, black rosary beads to my waist, black slick, I'm already goth. <laughs> Before my name's Glam, it's just the way I was. Yeah, and some nerdy dude walks into the house guitars one day as I'm standing there, hands on hips, waiting to be in a commercial that never happens. And some nerdy dude walks in and goes, And I was with my girlfriend, who was also a budding, I mean, you know, we were young groupies. And uh, he goes, I want to take your picture, I'm like, okay. So he took our pictures and put them up at the Rochester Institute of Technology, 
which caused a huge uproar because get the satanic chicks. Who are these devil work? Of course, the pictures were in a graveyard. Who are these? And I'm like, first taste of negative attention. Yes, I'm on the way. <laughs> so anyway, forward fast to the Armatron. So 40 years, at least, after begging to be on their commercial, Retrovirus is playing in Buffalo, New York a couple of years ago. And some kid comes up to me and goes, um, hey, I'm Armin's son. I'm like, what? Will you do a commercial for us right now? I'm like, it only took 45 years. But the interesting thing is that his son, Eric, who runs a lot of the, the T-shirts and the, and the mail order now, mm-hmm. I had two twin cousins that had twin comic book shops in upstate New York. Armin's son was kind of raised by my cousins. I was kind of raised at the house guitars. Very weird. Very weird. I went on to stay with Eric a few times, and yes, I guess I did a little iPhone commercial. But I've been back to the house guitars recently, and I walk in, and there's Armin and his brothers, and they, the same response. <laughs> you used to stand in this doorway causing trouble. I'm like, yeah, you don't know how many records I stole. I don't even know where I put them. And um, it's just, you know, it's just grand when, like myself, there are some people that just, we're not going the fuck away. We're going to continue to do what we do. And there you go. Yeah. And it's also amazing how like they don't really get the respect they do as musicians. Cause as you say, like that is like to do a, your first record as a quadraphonic triple LP, that is an artistic statement. <laughs> Rat fucker. And uh, I mean, they were, <laughs> they were way ahead of their, I mean, look, anybody that starts their career by stealing um, hello, present company included, I have to have respect for, I never went to jail. I guess they did the time for me, but I'm just too clever a criminal. So is that where you were kind of like picking up records, I guess, at the House of Guitars? Yeah. Well, you know, when people actually had a record player. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I had met two, I had met two swinging guys at a roller rink. Yeah. Of course, I wanted to go into roller derby, derby early on. But then again, I always like pushing people around. <laughs> and they were really, you know, really into, they were a little, a few years older than me and they really had uh, more money than I did. So they had a great record collection. And that's how I got turned on to a lot of things. And, you know, you're in your basement planning your fucking escape. Bring me some music and bring me some books. I got to get out of here. Mm-hmm. And I did. On that first trip to New York, did you see any bands like Milk and Cookies or any of the other kind of glam bands that were happening around then? I really don't remember what bands I saw. All I remember is going to these really sleazy five-story discos that had pillow rooms, lots of drugs, and where girls eventually got murdered. How did we get into these places at 13 and 14 years old? Or even when I came back to New York at 16, nobody would pay to get into anywhere. We'd all get in everywhere for free. They never carded anybody. I I, I mean, I've asked other people, too, who were there at the same time, like, how did we always get in for free? Like, I don't know. We just did. I guess we would just say, we're not paying. Let us in. And they say, okay. Oh, yeah, it's funny. Although not funny, I guess tragic. A lot of people that kind of grew up on the Lower East Side of New York around that time, or in, really in downtown Manhattan around that time, talk about how it was kind of like the island of of lost kids. You know, it was just like a bunch of young people running around, getting in places they maybe shouldn't be, or definitely shouldn't be. I thought it was the island of found souls myself. <laughs> yeah, I found my place, and I'm like, this is it. <laughs> I mean, it was less dangerous than the ghetto I was born in. So I mean, I just I. You know, I just was completely, as I still am, fearless. I mean, it's just like, oh, really? Please. Mm -hmm. Come on. 
And it's amazing to think of like, you know, punk rock and rap music as these sort of twin artists and punk rock. I mean, very broadly, like encompassing just sort of like new youth culture. Like, well, let me give you a little clue about when rap music actually started. And it's interesting because, you know, I'm working on this screenplay, true story of my life that actually starts during the blackout of 77. And there was so much looting in New York. Uh, Broadway had 1600 stores looted. That was the third riot I was in because I two race riots went in front of my house in 64 and 67 in upstate New York. I was that's I think where I got my sense of protest. But in 77, when the blackout from the lightning strikes hit New York, much like the weather we're having these days, um, all of the electronic stores were looted. And that's kind of where hip hop really took off. And but you know it's an amazing because as you're saying it's like this sort of like this real pe- sense that's very similar to what's going on now but of people being just dispossessed young people being dispossessed and you know I guess finding the tools to express that. Well, I mean, look as far as I'm concerned, from '64, '67, race riots in like many American countries, '77 um, different because it was a blackout and then looting happened and I don't blame anybody for looting just. Don't loot mom and pops, please. Um, you know, I don't give a shit if anybody's looting Gucci or Target. I just don't care. Yeah. Um, it's like they're ripping you off every day. What's a little, you know, a trade-off here or there? But, um, yeah, I mean, it, nothing's really changed, and it, is, it has to change now. I mean, you know, look, I've always been an apocalyptician. To me, it's always been apocalypse now. To me, I've always uh, been waiting for the revolution um, being, you know, the one woman protest machine who's got a bullhorn on a hill screaming into the void forever. So I think, and I hope, you know, uh, it's not just a few cities. It's so global right now. And we all know shit has got to change. And it's been made more obvious by the idiot who America did not choose, but somehow bankrolled his way into the White House. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess his rise is also kind of the same time happening in New York, you know, or... What's that? One more time? I'm sorry, his rise is kind of happening also at the same time in New York, like, you know, like the, the real estate robber barons and their rise throughout the 80s. And this is an interesting point. So I produced, you know, I used to perform a lot with this poet, now dead, Emilio Cubiero. People want to say, why are you performing with him? He's so creepy. He looked like an Italian pimp with a big fat mustache. But his stuff was so hardcore. Mm-hmm. And I produced an album of his called The Death of an Asshole. And somebody just sent me the other day, because, okay, I produced it. It was 1988. But one of the tracks on there, I'm actually, I don't even remember this. I'm saying, how do you find the defendant, Donald Trump? <laughs> Guilty as fucking charged. This is 1988. I mean, I'm always, I know, I'm always 30 or more years ahead of the time. <laughs> it was kind of shocking to just have somebody send that to me recently. I wish you had been wrong on this one. Uh, well, you know what? Whatever. Um, I guess go, going back to the, um, you know, Rochester, uh, you mentioned the Stooges. Did they come through Rochester and like were the Velvet Underground, those types of bands coming through? Uh, no, Velvet Underground did not. Um, when This is interesting. When, when Iggy Pop actually came through Rochester with David Bowie, and by the way, by that point I was already over Bowie and over Iggy Pop. I did not like. You know, I was very into the Stooges. I was very into Bowie up till Diamond Dogs. I did not like most of post Bowie after that. As a matter of fact, I just couldn't stand it. And when they came to Rochester, and I could have been there 
with the backstage passes. I'm like, I don't like them anymore. I'm not going. And it's a good thing because they got busted. And they would have been busted with drugs and an underage girl. So I kind of saved their asses by finding them boring by that point. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I saw like Mouth the Hoople, Slade, Roxy Music, Kiss's, you know, first big tour, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so many, you know, so many, so many groups. You mentioned being kind of over it at a certain point. Is that when you were kind of really discovering literature? Oh, no, literature came actually probably before, the, well, right at the same time of the music. But I mean, I was into Selby and Miller and Dasan at, you know, at 13. So where did that stuff come from? I have no fucking idea because there wasn't a book in my goddamn house. I must have just been driven to the used bookstore. I have no idea because I don't remember reading book reviews. Yeah. I just, I really don't know how it happened into my hands. I have no idea. I, I mean, I wish I could say, oh, this person turned me on because I know, you know, other people turned me on to some music that were older than me. I don't remember anybody turning me on to these books. I got no clue. And did you ever see the New York Dolls live? Uh, not when I originally wanted to. And it when I did, it was, you know, it wasn't what it once was. Yeah. <laughs> was that like the kind of red patent leather kind of communist era? And, yeah, exactly. I'm just going to get a drink and I'll be right back. Oh, so. please. Absolutely. Hold that thought. I don't know what you're drinking, but to me, it's one o'clock. <laughs> I'm more a cannabis person. So I did once tell David Johansson, uh, that, you know, I ran away. To New York because of him, but he just, yeah, he just flipped it. He's like, well, really? <laughs> so what? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because I guess by the time you get back, it's kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're twilight years. Yeah, they were kind of almost done by 76, 77. So who was kind of making up the scene around the time you got back to New York? Like, who were the bands that you were kind of interested in? The Ramones were playing a lot. I mean, I found them kind of, you know, silly, but... <laughs> I, they were good, but they were silly to me because I was such a brat. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was so, I mean, so much music that it inspired me. Richard Hell and the Boydoids. I mean, uh, I saw their first show, and that's when I went up and pledged my undying devotion to Robert Quine, one of the best guitarists alive. And I think because he was one of the few people that weren't afraid of me. Oh, he wants to be afraid of. I'm like a cute, you know, and aggressive. Uh, sexy snot i don't know but <laughs> people found me kind of scary robert quine did not but then again he always carried a screwdriver in his pocket so i i just went i just said you are fucking god and we became friends and um so richard hell and the boy Nights were great they were one of my favorite bands I, I, richard hell i think he's the biggest disappointment out of that era because um the first album is so great second eh, and then kind of crap after that. And I find his literature, literature, terrible. And he was so charismatic. I just find him like the biggest disappointment of, of that generation. You know, Manster, who nobody really knows about them. One song on like the CBGB's album. They were one of my favorite bands. Uh, just, there's not, you can't even find any work. Even Weasel Walter can't dig up anything on them. They were this weird, like hard, fast post free jazz band with a six foot six lead singer who'd stand behind the drums and sing about basement torture. I don't, they were great. Um, <laughs> I liked Mink DeVille because they were so unpunk and, you know, kind of doo-wop romantic. And it was Willie DeVille that named me Lydia Lunch. Um, you know, there were just so many bands. One of my favorite bands that I saw around that period was Union Carbide from Gothenburg, Sweden. Mm-hmm. 
who were, you know, their first album was great. They played CBGBs. They were amazing. They were just, you know, it was, you would be out every night. And of course, Suicide, the first band I saw on re-arriving in New York, who became my friends and who I've been doing a suicide tribute to in Europe, Suicide and Alan Vega, mm-hmm. tribute concerts to. Nobody in the States gets it or can afford it, so whatever. They're one, like, yeah, like just so you mentioned yourself being one of these people that's ahead of the time, too, and they're like right up there with you. It's natural that you guys would become kind of kindred oh, spirits. I mean, you know, I walked into Max's, don't ask me how I got in. They were <laughs> playing. I just got to New York. That was it. I'm like, pledge, pledge my allegiance. And I was younger than Martin Reb's son at the time. Mm-hmm. So, how, how did that like? Like, how do they fit in with, like, these other bands that you're mentioning? Because, like, what they're doing is so much darker and... and oh, did not. Yeah. Didn't fit in with anybody. I mean, and the thing is, they were going since, like, the early 70s. Yeah. Uh, they did not fit in. How they fit in was the psychodrama. What's interesting is, you know, a great book came out on them um, two years ago out of the UK by Chris Needs, who's a great British uh, rock writer. And he asked me to write uh, a small intro for it. You know, it's always very difficult to write intros for people that you really, you know, have really influenced you. But what it made me realize is, first of all, between uh, Frankie Teardrop, which I've covered with Retrovirus for years, and Cherie Cherie, between doo-wop and psychodrama, this is a vast divide. And suicide would not be the same without both parts of those elements, because they were a romantic psychosis on stage of the highest order. Um, I just found them the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. Uh, what about the Steel Tips, Joe Coleman's band? Because I know you collaborated later on, but did you ever see them? Yes, and that was amazing. And Joe Joe Coleman has always been a hero of mine. I mean, his paintings are amazing. His poetry oh, yeah. is great. There's a documentary that's been like 10 years in the making on him. Um, We've done, you know, I've been on some shows where I'm where he's introduced me. He's more like the best introduction of my life. He's just phenomenal. He's a phenomenal human being and a great artist. And anybody that doesn't know his paintings, please investigate. He paints with a one hair brush, mainly big uh, paintings about serial killers, but telling their whole story within it. He's just amazing. Mm-hmm. And, I, and those performances, like, you know, obviously, you know, all his performance career, but like those early steel tip shows, there's that one video that's, I guess they were opening for the dead boys. It looked like, and <laughs> he blows himself up. Yeah. <laughs> he does. Um, well, and, you know, protesting again. I mean, another, another person protesting physically. Yeah, absolutely. Well, he's, he's such a, like an artist of extremes, right? There's a sort of maximist explosion on stage. And then as you're saying, there's these. Also very based in Carney reality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it is like, you know, a carnival. And even his paintings have some kind of Carney element to them just because of the style. I mean, they look like old circus. Um, uh, I don't know what they would call just circus paintings in a sense. Yeah. No, they're, they're just, they're gorgeous. And like, there's something that you can kind of get lost in forever because as you're saying, there's the whole story of the, the subject. Well, when he had, he had a huge uh, retrospective a couple of months ago in New York and they gave you magnifying glasses (laughs) because he paints with like a big monocle or a magnifying glass. So you need a magnifying glass to go into all the details. It's just, it's just, it's something that you just really, you penetrate into the world of Joe Coleman. And I, I love artists like that where, you know, they just dig deeper and then shovel out further than most other people. 
So was there like any sort of precursor to the no wave scene? Because it seems like a few years later, obviously, all all these no wave bands are going. But did you see any of these bands as being part of that, or is it a completely separate thing? When, yeah, when... to me, the first no wave band was Mars. Still one of my favorite bands. I had to play some Mars the other day just to relieve the tension. Uh, Mars was the most psychedelic. Based, you know, with, with like two, at least two of the people were insane in the band, and you could tell. Um, just the most psychedelic out there band I think I've ever seen. And, and that's really seeing Mars. I'm like, okay, now I have to really start a band. And hence Teenage Jesus. And then I went on to work with the guitar player, China Bird, Lucy Hamilton, and we made an instrumental record, which became the uh, soundtrack for The Right Side of My Brain, the film I did with Kern. And she's still one of my very, very good friends, um, Lucy Hamilton. And Mars were just incredible. And it's it's so surreal. It's so Dada. It's so unrelated to anything. That was the beauty. And and I knew that, you know, look, I mean, I wanted to do spoken word, but there was just no, there was no uh, vehicle for it at that point in, in 76, 77 yet. Post, post, you know, beat Patti Smith, rock, hippie poetry, no. Pre, you know, slam poetry, and so, uh, all right, I'll start a band, half of which is instrumental. Go figure that one out. And, um, but you know, my main point was to do spoken word. But Teenage Jesus was an, was definitely inspired by both the brutality of suicide and the insanity of Mars. Yet sounding nothing like either of them. But yeah, I mean, well, the thing with Teenage Jesus is, look, it had to be extremely precise. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could not be sloppy because it was so minimal. It had to be as brutal as I felt. Um, it was not pretty. I was, but it wasn't. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it's still kind of. It's interesting when somebody like Weasel comes to me, who's like, you know, a master composer who knows everything about music and things thinks I had a secret system for creating the music of teenage. <laughs> But then when you try to get somebody who really knows music to play that, they have no comprehension of what it is because it makes no sense to a musician because I was not a musician. I just had to get that temper tantrum out, and that's what came out. I don't, don't even ask me how. Well, yeah, and it's real, right? You mentioned in other interviews that you're like you view yourself more as a journalist than a musician. Yeah, but I dare you to try to play the music of Teenage Jesus. Go ahead. <laughs> I know I could I I can't play anything to save my life but I think that's well, the thing I, mean, I am not a musician but you know what I mean when you as I always like to say if you don't have a vision don't give it a fucking sound well I had a vision and I gave it a sound mm-hmm. and I continue to do that no and and that's the thing about those records it's they're really real and they still cut through as being real and I guess that's you know you can't fake that it's amazing also how many people come on this show that you know are, have worked with you in the past be it Kid Congo Powers or Thurston Moore that talk about how intimidating you were when they first kind of uh, were around you uh, now how much do they love me <laughs> i know but both both of them like i when thurston was on i was talking to him and i'm like oh did you ever when did you meet lydia lunch back then you know and tina's <laughs> jesus and he's like oh god no i was terrified of her yeah well we used to stalk each other on the subway platform <laughs> and obviously he eventually bend to my seductive powers and you know i mean again look i'm, I'm 16 17 I'm so fucking intimidating because I know what I want to do because I am sexual, because I am aggressive, because I'm articulate. 
I mean, okay, I guess so. Mm-hmm. But you know, when you get to know, and it's, it's interesting because I read a lot of shy, quote unquote, shy boys, Kid Congo, Thurston Moore, J.G. Thurwell, Roland S. Howard, all very shy, nice boys. And you know what? Might have been scared at first, but quickly warmed up to me because they know that's not them I'm against. Mm-hmm. I am the defender of anything weird, different, sensitive, oversensitive, made insensitive by the situation, traumatized. It's like, you know, the only ones that really need to fear me are straight white men who think they could fucking take me down on a wrestling match because trust me, I will kill you. Uh, going back to, you know, kind of the, the, the sort of explosion that's kind of the no wave scene. Did you did you feel like something was happening or there was like a need to separate it from the other punk stuff that was kind of happening at the time? Well, or? It, it was naturally separated because because first of all, it was way more avant-garde. Mm-hmm. It was more out there. We did not want to use rock music to uh, accelerate or to, you know, to 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 rebel with rock music. We wanted to rebel against rock music in a sense and rebel, especially against the early seventies rock music, which of course in retrospect, then I came to do a whole cover album (laughs) of these songs I hated because they had to be redone and reclaimed. So I did it and it's called under the covers with Cypress Grove, whatever. But um, no, it was totally outside. First of all, no one in the no wave scene, except for myself and James chance had any sense of style. Punk had a very uh, accurate sense of style, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Punk was really defined a lot by its style. We did not look like that, but we had a sense of style. Um, No Wave was looked pre-grunge, but had nothing to do with that music. It was just more avant-garde and outside of everything. uh, You know, it was just a very different flavor. And I don't really think, for instance, in London or in Los Angeles, there was very much no wave going on at the same time. There was punk or even what I consider more like, you know, punky rock music. But there wasn't really the avant-garde dissidence and dissonance that no wave out of New York had. It's just, and, and why I don't know, I, mean, I have no idea why, why it was there specifically uh, more so than anywhere else. Yeah, it's really weird. Like, as you mentioned, like, you know, there's bands like the Homosexuals from England who are definitely doing something artier, but like, right. it's, it doesn't have that realness that that no wave stuff has. Artier. And artier, I mean, that's also, that's, you know, still breaking away. Mm-hmm. But, you know, also in, in England, what's interesting is, you know, and there are many bands I really liked out of the UK. I mean, Wire, which I don't really consider punk, they're considered punk. Joy Division, I don't really consider punk. Magazine, I don't consider punk. They were just in that time period. But they were basically, to me, a different form of just really regal rock music. I think of punk, I think of something that's, first of all, looks like punk, smells like punk, is sped up, and has a social, in a sense, social, political, or not, rebellious, you know, antagonism towards society. Uh, no way, didn't really, it was something different than that. And then the bands that I just previously mentioned, they might have been in that same period, but they were still more rock and more, you know what I mean? It, it's a different kind of rock without being the propulsive nature yeah. that what punk was, because punk was propulsive. Mm-hmm. So when like a band, like, you know, like the Sex Pistols, uh, like, were they just like something that just didn't rate with you at all when they 
kind of exploded? I thought they were hilarious and ridiculous. And also, I mean, I thought they were prefabbed. Yeah. You know, I mean, Malcolm McLaren, I mean, if, you know, he, he wanted someone to sell his T-shirts. I'm not discounting the music they made on their first album. And I'm not, I mean, to me, of course, a better form of expression and art was public image. Mm-hmm. And after that, I'm sorry, but John Lydon, shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess he has, because I haven't heard anything from him for me. But anyway, um, you know, the Sex Pistols, I mean, and that kind of music, it just, oh, the only really quote-unquote punk rock besides Dead Boys, which I still think are rock and roll, Buzzcocks, I really loved. Um, it's just that, you know, it, I guess it's just, some people don't like country. I don't like opera music. And I just didn't like rock and roll sped up unless there was something more perverted or weird about it. And I think a lot of punk rock is that. No diss to it. Do whatever you fucking want. I don't have to fucking listen to it. By the way, I can't listen to anything. I don't have a stereo or a CD player. If it's not on download, I don't care right now. <laughs> with, with, I've heard it all. Uh, like you With Beirut Slump, do they over overlap at all with Teenage Jesus and the Jerks? It did. And, you know, because, because I am a musical schizophrenic, and it started very early on. Um, and again, it might have been my, the Bowie influence that nobody seems to notice that I have, like extreme Bowie influence. Um, they were in slump readers for over a year and played three gigs. And it's it's what I call horror core. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a very different sound. It, it sounds like nothing else. I don't even advise anybody to investigate it. That you know about it is amazing. <laughs> Horrorcore. Some of the lyrics taken from homeless people. Um, I so TDG is very fast, sharp, tantruming, very slump, slug over a razor blade, as JG Thurwell once described it. Uh, just like a horror movie brought to music. Yeah, I love I, that seven inch. I just felt like doing it. <laughs> oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, I just felt like doing it. And it was like all everything I did documented. But it is what's interesting is uh, the butthole surfers would come up and quote Beirut slumped me. Nobody even knows this fucking thing. <laughs> shut up. Shut up with a knife. All right. All right. I get it. But like, that's funny because, like, you know, obviously I didn't know that until now, but like, you can totally hear that in the butthole surfers, like how that would be something that they would take in and, and, and internalize and, and put out. That. Now, let me just cut you off there. I love the butthole surfers. I asked Paul Leary, who claimed Beirut Slump was a big influence on him, to be the original guitar player of Retrovirus. Oh, he said, oh, ah, no. And I, and I tried to convince him I'm the anti-Gibby Haynes. I know how hard he is to work with. He's like, ah, I think I'll just sit here and collect my checks. I'm like, fuck. <laughs> and by the way, Lisa Walter was a much better choice. <laughs> oh well, that's sort of, that's a that's a shame to hear on that one. But that- <laughs> cooking fucking spare ribs for those cocksuckers, <laughs> any panic doesn't matter. Weasel Walter was a better choice. Uh, so uh, you, I've heard you t- say that Teenage Jesus and the Jerks had a had an end, a definitive end, and you're like the point was made. What was that moment for you where you're like, okay, this project just needs to stop, and I need to move on? Well, I, mean, I, I don't know. All projects, you know. Look, once it's recorded. I mean, in, in, in the origins of my creativity, it's like you have a concept, you find the collaborators, you document it, maybe you tour it, maybe you don't, you go on. Once it's documented, but that's not to say, I mean, teenagers did have to, as I like to call it, revivals. <laughs> All right. And that was one with Thurston Moore and, and James Kilbunis. 
hilarious. And one with <laughs> one show only with Weasel Walter and Tim Dahl. And Tim Dahl, bass player of Child Abuse, many other people, Retrovirus, one of the most astute and, and complex musicians I've ever met, had to be reduced and taught like a monkey, literally with his hands taken in weasels, to reduce his intelligence to playing like a monkey. The drums were t- it was one of the highlights of my life because I'm like, <laughs> and he doesn't, he couldn't get it because he's too musical. Now, Weasel somehow is so perverted that, you know, he, he gets teenage Jesus, but to, to reduce a musician of that caliber to playing the drums like a monkey, <laughs> oh, that was so sad. And he did an amazing job, it was so satisfying, but. You know, and the thing is, and the only reason I would, you know, did uh, Teenage Jesus Revival twice was the music is so fucking brutal and ugly. Women, don't be afraid to be that fucking ugly and learn how to be brutal. It was kind of mandatory. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I did one, a few, sh- a few short show, a few dates with Thurston and Scalbonis, and then only one show with Weasel and Tim when Nicholas Jar released this incredible live compilation album that weasel put together other than that it's like you know it, it's not going to happen again the, the point has been made and let, let's just talk about retrovirus for a minute retrovirus i mean the only reason that has gone on for as long as it has besides the fact i love working with these musicians bob bird one of my oldest and dearest friends tim doll with a walter who knows everything about my music is most people haven't heard any of my fucking music anyway. And most of these things were never done live. So it was interesting to me to actually do something that can uh, forever morph. And also we can do things like Frankie Teardrop or Final Solution, do whatever we fucking want. But I have people that can bring to the music I originally created something a little bit more accelerant because they're more accomplished than what we were back when, when, you know, we were originally recording this shit. So they can keep in, in, in with the theme of the vibe, but bring something else to it. And most of these things I've ever, never performed live. I love performing with retrovirus. It's the longest running uh, contagion I've ever had. <laughs> Cheers to that. What were, um, you know, like what were the shows though? Like for teenage Jesus and the jerks and, and, you know, even Beirut slump, like we're, <laughs> Come on, honey. Beirut slump, uh, three shows rehearsing <laughs> for a year. Uh, and in one of the shows, a homeless man came up and started singing the lyrics, which I thought he had written anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um, Teenage Jesus, let's face it, even at a 10 minute long set, most people would run out, you know, in horror. Mm-hmm. But we went to Europe, we went to the UK. I mean, and, you know, I have to say, it was that German insect who I despise. Blixa Bargeld, Combine Strix and Denoibotten in the Bad Seeds, who actually put the first Teenage Jesus single on a jukebox in Berlin that helped us actually go to Europe. See, I think one of my smartest moves <laughs> amongst a million of them, I took Teenage Jesus to Europe, to the UK and to Europe, where most other people could not figure out a way to do that. Well, they didn't know how to get hand jobs under the fucking table. I'm sorry, it wasn't that fucking hard. I knew I had to take my stuff to Europe and keep going back to Europe because America would not support me. It still doesn't. I mean, it's been Europe since the late 70s till now that has accepted 
my musical schizophrenia that has accepted or, or offered to showcase whatever it is I'm doing in all the variant musical, you know, uh, themes and genres. And I knew America was just, it, it what not that even that it's not ready. They don't have the capacity because they're so fucking stupid here that, and you know, I mean, even people like X didn't go to Europe and they were huge. Mm-hmm. You know, so many people didn't go to Europe uh, until much later, or it was a real, but I just, there were only three of us in teenage years. I'm going and I'm going again and I'm going again. And that actually is why I can still continue to create without having a fucking day job. And trust me, it's not like I'm not poor. I'm just not working at Arby's. It's funny because I actually got my copy of Orphans in Germany at a show we played. So. There you go. <laughs> oh, lucky you. Um, so what were those European shows like? Like what bands were you playing with over there? I, I, the only band I remember playing with and the first time we went to the UK, and it must have been 78 maybe, 78 or 79, was uh, Generation X. Yeah. Who well, you know, Billy Idol was cute then. Ugh, what adult, whatever. <laughs> uh, I don't remember. I mean, I think that the one time Teenage Jesus went to Europe, it was with Beth B. and the films that we had done around that period, like Black Box. or um, So we went with like Teenage Jesus and films. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, you know, honey, really, I mean, 40 more, more than 40 years ago, were you even born? I, I am 40 years old, so I... All right, I, so, okay, do you remember what was happening when you were a fetus? I'm Not yet, but I'm working on that okay, technology. Oh, yeah, you're straight <laughs> in my memory bank. <laughs> That's what this thing is. It's meant to be an exercise for the memory banks. But on that first European... Well, I'd rather do a Suzanne Summers exercise workout than try to once again <laughs> dig the sand and salt out of my brain pan, but carry on. Very much okay. appreciate it. On that first tour, did you, did you play I Denmark? I don't in- fucking remember. Okay. So Go ahead. Was the question. No, I was just going to say like, how did that, like how did that connection with the Danish bands, like the sods, um, sort soul, uh, come about? Well, I don't know. That was later. And I don't know exactly when that happened. I was already living in London when I hooked up with sort soul. So, okay. Okay. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, I, as, the treachery is I was in New York from 76 to 80. I went to, I went to Los Angeles till, uh, maybe 82. I went to London to work with Roland S. Howard mm-hmm. for a couple of years and met JG Thorwell. And that's where I like worked with how Roland S. Howard did honeymoon in red, uh, and very, and you know, various other things. So, and then went back to New York. Well, I, actually, that California period, that thirteen thirteen record is fucking unbelievable that you did when you went out there. Thank you very much. And yeah, we have Cliff Martinez coming up on one of our future podcasts in a few weeks, and and what he has done with his career is just amazing. I mean, thirteen thirteen was just an incredible band. Mm-hmm. Uh, that album is still one of my favorites. I have to say. Well, how did you like? Were you like aware of the weirdos before that, or like how did that? Oh, club- no. I was not, I mean, no, because they're punk. I wasn't. But what's weird is I've been, I've been in touch with John Denny a lot recently. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I mean, I've even podcasted him. It's coming up soon. But John Denny now lives in New Orleans. He says, because he had met me once when I was living in New Orleans, which was after I lived in L.A., and he decided to move there as well. Um, John Denny is an incredible, the weirdos are, I mean, Dick Denny, the, one of the best. He's up there with Robert Klein and Weasel Walter on guitar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. John Denny is one of the best, like, vocal impersonators. I mean, he should be a voiceover artist of the highest, you know, thing. I actually have proposed to him working on a 
record, him and I, on hypnosis. Oh, wow. Because he has so many voices and they're so great. And he's so wonderful, John Denny, of the weirdos. But I was not aware of the weirdos. And it was it was actually Greg Williams, who I don't even think was in the weirdos, who approached me and then brought the other ones in. And it is still one of my, you know, favorite records. And, um, you know, I mean, some people like to say it's goth. Uh, when, you know, goth, whatever term you want to do, what, it's goth because I wear black and I have black hair. Is it goth? I mean, I don't know. It's You know what it's me? It is, it's, it's, it's tomes to the threat of serial killers, love stories to serial killers, and the fear of being murdered by one while living in Los Angeles. Mm. That's what the album is about. It's, it is a really dark record, so I can see why people would label it as goth, but you're right, it's like, uh, it's so much more serious than that. It's not playing dress-up. Okay, what separates it from goth, in your opinion? I mean, I, just because I don't like any label but No Wave, I'm just being obstreperous, but why is it different than goth to you? Because I think it's a little more serious. Like, I look at goth as being a little more kind of like pantomime and play-acting-ish, and I find that, as you're saying. I have to say... The goth fans are the most beautiful and the most respectful. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying there's much of their music that I really, I'm glad anybody does anything. I don't have to fucking hear it. I don't care. <laughs> but they are the most beautiful and they are the most respectful. And okay. So the seriousness of it separates it. But again, it's like, I never considered myself punk because I've never made punk music. Okay. Yeah. I like the word no. I like the term no way because it's so abstract. Because I do feel more surreal, more in touch with the Dadaist and the surrealist. Um, I am a confrontationalist. You know, musician, don't bother. Um, you know, a lot of these categories. And the thing is, they're useful because really, most things that you could consider goth fit within the goth frame, fit within the punk frame, country, opera, whatever. I don't know where you expect to stick me in, honey. Where'd you like to stick me in, Damien? You want to stick me in somewhere, baby? <laughs> oh, I am. I'm listening. Where do I fit? Well, I, I, that's the thing is I think you're one. I, I don't know. I, I look at punk rock as just being a way to label this energy that we're talking about. That was like a youth energy that was upset with the mainstream that was happening. And, and I kind of think like, you know, all these places that, you know, all these people you collaborate with all your work over time, like it doesn't, obviously I don't want to put a, I can't put you in a box certainly. By oh, any well, really? There's not one big enough? <laughs> no, but, but at the same time, there's like, you know, you're working with people in the sods, you're working with people in the birthday party, you're working with people in the weirdos. Like there's, there's this energy that like, you're, you're obviously bigger than, but like all these people are tapped into the same thing. It felt like it feels yes, like. right. Exactly. And that's what needs to be redefined because it's just a fucking word. Mm-hmm. And it's a word I've always kind of rejected because to me, yeah, if it's about the energy, I understand it, but you know, <laughs> I myself being a multi-schizophrenic, expansionist, surrealist, Dada on the side. It's like, I don't like really, and that's why I like the term no way, because nobody really knows what it fucking means. <laughs> it also has so many preconceptions attached to it. Yeah. Um, and again, punk rock music. I mean, I don't really think Teenage Jesus is not punk rock. It's no wave. You know, I, I mean, and that's why I was like surf rock. Remember slump horror rock? Uh, somebody with Roland S. Howard is swamp rock. Call it what you will. There is no box big enough to fit me in, but that's all right. 
Because I just punched my way out of it, motherfucker. <laughs> Come on. What? Well, yes. We're talking today because the humidity was 90% until about an hour ago, which is why we had to postpone this an hour. Well, I'm glad we did. I'm really happy we did because this has been, this is amazing to get to do this with you because, yeah, like, uh, you know, you know, like it gets codified punk rock and it gets like kind of marketed and it becomes something different. But like the idea that there is this kind of energy that just exists beyond borders and exactly. Yeah. I love that. Quantum, quantum music. Yeah. It it kind of like, obviously it, no wave is different, but like, even with no wave, the bands that wind up on that compilation are the ones that are taken up by the mainstream as the no wave scene. Were there other artists that you felt fit in that haven't been? There were other artists, but I did not find them as extreme as what was on the no New York album. And like, why not just showcase the most extreme? Why go for the less, you know what I mean? Why a compilation of shit that doesn't really expand the boundary? Do you remember how Brian Eno kind of discovered what you guys were doing? Oh, my God. Adele Berté told him she was working for him. He fucked himself into the hospital during the recording. He did nothing. He did the version <laughs> of Teenage Jesus I've ever heard. He did nothing. Robert Quine did a good job producing some of the singles, and Weasel Walter did a better job producing the, the fucking live 1977-79 album. He did nothing, you know. Uh, going back, I guess, then to the 1313 record, speaking of engineers, Stephen McDonald from Red Cross engineered some of that, right? I don't remember. Okay. Um, Ask him. I'm, I will. He's, he's a Sometimes good... I tried to chicken hawk him, but, you know, he's probably already too old for me. I don't believe it. <laughs> uh, with the Sods record, did you guys, did you, sorry, with the uh, uh, Soul record, did you go over and record with them or did you just send them the track? No, I went over and recorded with them. You, yeah, it was it was it was not as easy as it is now to just record and send over. No, I went and recorded with them. Oh, it's such that, and that that boy girl song is just so good. That that. Oh, I can't stand it, but I do like the other one, "As She Waves," which is more trumpet based. But I'm glad you like that. Really, you don't like it? I did not. It's too pop. Well, no. the Strokes covered it. Yeah, <laughs> do they Strokes cover it? Ah. Fuck them. Yes, they did. I had no idea about that. Oh, look, I mean, Bobby Gillespie and Kate Moss, why covered some Velvet Morning after Roland and I? I'm like, oh, we dedicated it to you. I'm like, why didn't she dedicate some of her bloody fucking millions to Roland before he fucking died? Yeah, no, absolutely. Nope. My covers, just saying. Well, I think Roland Howard is, is one of those people that is one of the oh. great geniuses of all time in music. I am so happy to have pledged my allegiance to him the first time I saw the birthday party in New York and I was already a huge fan and, and I just abdicated America and ran off to work with him mm-hmm. and uh, I am so happy with what we what we did and being able to tour them and and also still knowing Harry Howard I was just in Europe a few months ago doing the Roland S. Howard tribute with, with his brother Harry Howard who was also in the live shotgun wedding for Europe and doing, hearing 25 of Roland's songs played live, it was just chilling. And so, you know, and, and Teenage Snuff Film, oh. which is reissued now, is just one of my favorite records. I couldn't um, agree more on that one. I mean, it, I mean, I mean, and uh, Sleep Alone and Exit Everything, two of my favorite songs. He was just so lovely, so sweet, so shy, so romantic, so funny. And, you know, he didn't have that great an output. It didn't fucking matter. Every note was so important that he played. Mm-hmm. I'm just so happy to have been able to work with him. You know, it, it is one of the highlights of my life, I have to say. Him, like, as you say, Teenage Snuff Film, like, it's someone who, right until... 
you know, kept writing these incredible songs. Oh, it's just amazing. Uh, so I guess like, how did that collaboration first come about? Like, how'd you hear about the birthday party? Was it like, were you a fan okay. of? I was living in LA and it was right after 1313 and I heard the birthday party. And then I was in New York running away from somebody in LA and the birthday party were playing 20 people, of course, nobody did. And I just ran up to Roland S. Howard and said, um, I love you. <laughs> and he knew Queen of Siam and Teenage Jesus. He goes, I love you too. And he goes, let's do, I want to do some Velvet Morning with you. I'm like, I'm coming to England. And I just decided to go. That was it. Uh, you know, I've, I've punished you forever. And at some point in the future, would you come back and do a part two with me? Of course. Uh, before I let you go, though, one band that I forgot to ask you about that I just was wondering your thoughts on would be the Cramps, because obviously you collaborated with the members <laughs> of the band. Oh, Damien, you dig deep, don't you, you dirty devil? <laughs> uh, what about the Cramps? Well, the Cramps asked me to be their original drummer. I'd heard that, yeah. I, I said, I'm starting my own band, ask Miriam Lina, and they did. I saw the cramps the first time they came to New York when Ivy was in all turquoise and like cat glasses. Brian Gregory, they were amazing. Yeah. Um, what else do you want to know, Dirty Minds? <laughs> no, I'm not. Well, let's just say the blackout of 77, I was with Lux Interior. And then we got a call that Ivy was coming home and I had to hitch like 100 blocks home. All right. Do I need to say anything else? Damn, I did not know it was going to go there. Honestly, I thought we we're just. <laughs> I will tell you more about it next time, but off the record. Oh my gosh! Well, um, also, I guess if I can squeeze in one more question, Connie, of... you know what? Squeeze it in. Okay, there's one. There's this kind of moment early on where the no wave stuff's happening, and obviously the the seeds of that cinema transgression scenes happening with Beth B and stuff. Like, where do you kind of view them as one movement? Well, in a sense, yes, because they were they were breaking the rules of everything as well. There were, I mean, especially Beth B. I mean, who obviously, you know, Beth B. Who spent blood, tears, and years doing the documentary that that has just come out about me called "The War Is Never Over," which hopefully we will bring to Canada and everywhere else once COVID is lifted. Can't wait. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I consider, I mean, Teenage Jesus had a residency at Max's Kansas City every Monday night for a month. And I invited Beth and Scott B. to show films that they already had, but instead they decided to make films every week. And they made this series of films called The Offenders, starring everybody on the Lower East Side, John Lurie of the Lounge Lizards, Anna Sui, the designer, all the contortions, myself, blah, blah. And, and from there, I mean, we just went on to do more films. Uh, and, and then ending up uh, another 40 years later, Beth doing the only person who could, a documentary. And, you know, somebody, I mean, people are asking me, to, why haven't you done the documentary? I'm like, I'm not dead yet, please. And plus, I mean, we did the documentary. We already need part two. Mm-hmm. Nobody has seen it because it's been blocked out by the COVID. The only play, you know, it's shown in a few places. Trust me, we want to bring it everywhere. And not only because it's about me, but because it's about so many people that I've worked with, like Ron Athey, the performance artist, Danita Sparks is in there, uh, Nicholas Jar is in there, Richard Kurt, so many people. And to me, the entirety of my career has not just been about me, but about me collaborating with people so that we could create something that would not exist without us doing it together. And that is so important to me, you know? Absolutely. Well, Anytime you want to come back on this show, the door is always open. And 
I'll talk to you tomorrow. I mean, soon enough. <laughs> and you know what? I want to say to you, if you want to, if you want to put my protest speech up, I will send you an MP3 of it or even a short bit of it to, you know, I think it's very important. I, I yeah. absolutely. I'd love to put it. I'll, I'll I'll put it in if you want after the interview type thing as well. Yes, that would be great. Can I send it to you? Please do. I- Thank you, Damien. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Lydia, for coming on the show. And the protest rant that Lydia mentioned, you will be able to hear it at the end of the podcast. So please stay tuned and check that out. You know, an incredibly important artist, an incredibly influential artist, and someone that we're really fortunate to uh, be able to learn from. Someone who saw it all and, and, my gosh, has stories to tell. She also has her own podcast, The Lydian Spin. You can check that out wherever you get your, your podcasts at. And also, you can find Lydia Lunch on, on Facebook. And I'm sure she will answer some of your questions as she answered all of my punishing questions. And with some real shocking answers to some questions I didn't think were going to lead to some really shocking answers in some cases. But oh my gosh, that's what I live for. I live for those kind of episodes, you know? Um, speaking of living for episodes, next week on the show, John Ginoli from the band Pansy Division is on the show. And this is someone I have always wanted to talk to, an incredible songwriter. We've had Chris Freeman from Pansy Division on the show before, and I, I it's taken a long time to get John on the show, and I'm really happy that we finally uh, I'm, well, that I'm finally able to talk to him. Uh, he made a huge impression on me as a kid. You know, meeting him as a kid, it it really set me on on the path that I'm on, I think. You know, he's one of those people. Anyway, you'll hear all about this next week on the show. In the meantime, as always, Black Lives Matter. Go out there and try and, and just educate yourself about what's going on in the world right now. It's a very important time, a very pivotal time, um, and a time that we're recognizing you know, things that need to change, you know, go and look at groups that are talking about defunding police and why something like that is important right now. And just efforts that are being made to change the world that we're, we live in, because the reality is that the lives of black people and the lives of indigenous people are, are disproportionately affected by policing. Anyway, you know this stuff, or if you don't know this stuff, go out there and read people that are actually writing about this. You know, there are a lot of incredible stuff to read out there right now. And, and, you know, donate if you can, uh, show up if you can, uh, well, no, show up, you know, be involved. It's an important time. Um, also it's important right now to go out there and make your own culture because it'll help keep you sane, putting yourself out in the world, expressing yourself in creative ways. I really do feel is beneficial, um, for one's mental health. This podcast is tr- proof positive enough of that. Um, so go out there and and do that. Please sign your organ donor cards. And that's it. Um, love each other. And I will see you next week on the show. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. We do not need another election. We need an insurrection. An absolute overthrow of a corrupt cabal the kleptocratic corporate cockocracy that pisses on the poor, wages endless wars, bankrupts entire nations, gives tax breaks to the richest CEOs while cutting food stamps and paying slave labor wages, ensuring that most of us will remain forever poor. And by the way, this country, America, welcome to America, asshole, has an incarceration rate that is in itself criminal. We have the highest incarceration rate on the planet. 5% of the world's population, 25% of the world's prisoners. 
65 million Americans have criminal records. 2.9 million in correctional facilities. 6.5 million on parole. Blacks and Hispanics make up 28% of the U.S. population, but 56% of the prison population. The incarceration rate of black people is six times higher than whites for the same crimes, mostly petty drug charges. The number of inmates in for-profit prisons has risen 44% in the last decade. The cost of families and communities is absolutely impossible to estimate. Yet the biggest con of all, whose crimes are too numerous to mention, sits gloating in the White House the blood of 100,000 people on his hands from a pandemic he was warned about for months but did nothing to abate. If the asshole with the attention span of a fifth grader could have gotten his head out of his ass long enough to listen to the better judgment of scientists and doctors, instead of preaching quackery gathered from his chronic binging of ass-kissing late-night news broadcasts, we might have been better off. Yet he brags about what a great job he's doing as he urges cities to reopen. It's good for the economy, right, but bad for people's lifespan, you fucking idiot refuting, defaming, or firing anyone who doesn't agree with his idiotic conspiracy theories. We do not need another election. We need an insurrection. There's nobody to vote for. If the only options are a semi-senile, good-natured grandpa who smiles through his false teeth and thinks he can cultivate the black vote because he rubbed up against a black man in the White House, excuse me, the beige puppet, And sorry, but I'm not, Barack Obama. You could have done a lot better than betting down with bankers. You may have given us hope at first, false though it was, but like the 1960s, your failures are now all too apparent. Michelle would have done a better job. I think we need a real black man in the White House. Cornell West, are you listening? But I digress. Because even though we did not vote for him, we still ended up with a narcissistic, pathological liar... Thank you, Washington Post, for counting 19,127 lies in 1,226 days. A misogynist sexual predator who thinks the only good immigrant is one he can fuck, and after all, he married two of them, turning them both into Stepford wives. A privileged prick born with a silver spoon in his mouth and a stick up his ass who brags about filing for bankruptcy six times over as he bankrupts this entire country while lining his own pockets and those of his ass-kissing cronies, a bigoted, tantrum-throwing, racist bully who encourages police brutality as if their killing of over 4,000 people in the last five years wasn't enough, and we know exactly who they were killing. But like father, like son, the rotten fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. Fred Trump, that skunk that shat out a rat, was arrested in 1927 at a Ku Klux Klan rally in Queens, which he conned his way out of. Both crooks, Trump Sr. and Jr., were investigated in 1973 for civil rights violations because they just would not rend to anybody who wasn't white. Now, racism did not start with Trump. He just carries on in the family tradition of waving a Confederate flag to rally his supporters who are too stupid to realize that they'd never even be allowed to step foot in one of his grotesquely gouty bedbug-infested hotels, conveniently situated on a golf course, that he underpays undocumented workers to maintain, while he locks their cousins, mothers, brothers, and sisters up in cages in his own private gulag, while threatening to build a wall across a whole country to keep their people out. 
arrogant enough to demand another $18 billion when the dolt has only completed three new miles of the wall he ran for president on. Oh, we need to build a wall, all right. We need to build a wall around this idiot and stick William Barr, Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, and the rest of the Republicans who have profited off of playing lapdog to corrupt corporations whose incredible greed and a megalomania furthers class divide as they run rampant, profiteering off the gun lobby, the military-industrial complex, insider training, the fossil fuel barons, ad nauseum. It's making me fucking sick. Truly, really it is as the entire planet gasps for air while they slowly snuff the life out of all of us. As George Orwell once said, if you want a vision of the future, imagine a boot stomping on a human face forever. Fuck that. Racism didn't start with Trump. America was founded on it. After killing off most of the indigenous population, we simply started kidnapping and enslaving Africans. Eighteen American presidents owned slaves. The United States Police Force was originally started in the South as a slave patrol of white vigilantes meant to control the black population. White America has always been violent. It has been at war for almost every year of its existence. Oh, except for 17, if anyone's counting. Well, I am. Half the time on our own land. Freedom and liberty for all. Give me a fucking break. And now, as hundreds of thousands of people are flooding the streets in righteous indignation, protesting not only the latest murder in a string of many of another unarmed black man by four white cops, but the chronic abuse of institutional racism promoted once more by pricks in positions of power, who don't give a shit about the lives of others, about slave labor wages, the horrendous housing conditions we put people in, the lack of health care, proper nutrition, destruction to the environment, climate change, and every other form of abuse we have all fallen victim to. And you can't expect everyone to just fall in line with peace signs and slogans painted on cardboard. You can't blame people for looting when these crooks have looted entire countries. Because there will be some who, like myself... Feel enough is a fucking enough. You reap what you fucking sow. And if you treat enough people with disrespect, violence, and perpetual injustice, some of them are gonna revolt. I just hope these mandatory protests don't further spread the pandemic. But the biggest virus this country has right now is the moron in the White House. And the time is now. Dump Trump. A shallow grave. Will do. Martin Luther King said... I have a dream, well, I have a fucking nightmare, and it's Donald Trump.